Hi, I'm Homer Hargrove and I'm the pastor of Grave Top Church. I hope that today's message inspires you and that connecting with our church family today truly makes a difference in your life. Enjoy the message. Um, just joking, but today we are starting a new series called By Grace. By Grace. And we're going to be unpacking what the grace of God is uh, theologically, how it applies to us personally, and uh, even that when it comes to the application of extending it to others in a biblical way. And uh, I, I really felt moved about grace because I feel like there's a lot of confusion when it comes to um, our faith and the perspective of grace. And there's so many different denominations, so many different theological views about grace. And especially when, uh, because of how accessible, uh, how accessible knowledge is, is really opinions of others. It can be confusing when you hear one preacher say this and another preacher say that. And there's a lot of ideas of even like when it comes to grace and our salvation uh, and whether or not we are simply saved by grace in Jesus Christ or if we need to apply some works to it too. And so we're going to be really unpacking the, um, some, a theological perspective today. And to understand what we're talking about, I'm going to be talking about uh, uh, covenant theology, covenant theology. And there's, there's three major different um, viewpoints when it comes to theological views in, in our Christian faith. There's dispensationalism, which is the belief that God uh, reveals himself in, in different ways throughout periods of time. Um, and that right now we are in the sixth dispensation being the dispensation of grace. Um, I, I'm more inclined to believe covenant theology, and it's this, the theology that we, uh, that we were within an old co- the old covenant in which we, were, we would be right with God by following the laws of the, the Levitical priests, the laws of the Jews, and that we have entered a new covenant through Jesus Christ, this new covenant of grace. And so to unpack this, uh, I know I'm saying a lot of, uh, a lot of words right now, but I'm going to make it uh, a lot more simple and clear as we go into today. And I want to start off by talking about how grace, the whole message today is, but how? But how does this grace work? How does this grace work? And I, I feel like the, uh, to understand grace, we must reflect on what is our faith in Jesus Christ founded on. And that is the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the pivotal point in which our faith truly begins. And I want us to understand uh, this aspect by looking at that very moment in which Jesus died. And we can pull and unpack um, so much theology just from a couple verses. So we're going to start off in Luke chapter 23. And it says, But the other criminal protested, Don't you fear God even when you have been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man, referring to Jesus, hasn't done anything wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is a story of the two thieves on the cross that are crucified on each side of Jesus. It goes on to say, By this time it was... About noon, and darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. So now we're witnessing a solar eclipse for three hours, okay? The light from the sun was gone, and suddenly the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn down in the middle. Then Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. And with those words, he breathed his last. And so we're seeing in this book of Luke, this is the moment in which Jesus died that has all of these these natural and and supernatural occurrences happening in the moment of his death, right? Now we're going to jump to see what happens right after this by going to the book of John chapter 19. It says, it was the day of preparation and the Jewish leaders didn't want the bodies hanging there the next day, which was the Sabbath, in a very special Sabbath because it was Passover week. So they asked Pilate to hasten their deaths by ordering that their legs be broken. Then their bodies could be taken down. So so the soldiers came and broke the legs of the two men crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. So they didn't break his legs. 
One of the soldiers, however, pierced his side with the spear, and immediately blood and water flowed out. So to understand this point of the story, I mean, for years I was like, why are they breaking the legs over here? <laughs> to, to understand, you have to uh, understand that the form of crucifixion in which they would pierce their hands and their feet, they're hanging from the cross, because of uh, the weight of their body and the way that uh, everything was done, in order to breathe, to be, for their lungs to be able to expand, they would have to push up on the nail in their feet for their lungs to be able to open. And so when they would break their legs, it would cause them to not be able to breathe, so they're actually suffocating to death because they can't breathe anymore. So that's what's happening in this moment and why they broke the legs of the, the two people on the, the two criminals on the side, but they didn't break the legs of Jesus. And to, so in this moment, we're going to talk about the moment of death. The moment of death. Jesus' death is the transfer of grace. Jesus' death is a transfer of grace. All of, all of the New Testament is painting this imagery that Jesus is the payment for our sins. That, that when he was on the cross, that we literally transferred our sin onto him. The whole world's sin was transferred onto the shoulders of Jesus. And so he has transferred the payment of our sins. It's just like the idea of, of a, a literal court ruling payment of sin that needs to be paid. And Jesus made the payment for us. He paid for our fine. And so he transferred all penalty onto his shoulders through his death. So Jesus's death, it was the exact moment that we entered grace. Let me unpack this for a moment. The, the moment that he died is the minute that this transfer happened. And, that's, and we see this in the, in the events that are surrounding his death. The Bible says in the Old Testament through prophetic books like the book of Daniel and, and other places like Ezekiel about how in these moments that God will use the heavens, the stars, and, and, and the, the, the clouds, the atmosphere to, as a billboard for us as witness. And so he causes this coincidental solar eclipse to happen as a sign of significance. A sign of significance. And this supernatural thing happens to where the, the veil in the temple was torn in two. This veil is actually, it was called the, the veil that separated the holy from the holy of holies. To where only the high priest could go behind this veil. And that if, uh, even in the Old Testament, it would talk about how they would have bells attached to the priest's robe. Because if they, if they had sin within them that, that, and they would enter in the Holy of Holies, that they could die. And so they would check on them by ring, that bell ringing. If they didn't hear the bells ringing, then the priest died within the Holy of Holies and they would pull him out with a rope. And so you're talking about this, this, holy, this, this extremely supernatural holy place that only the high priest could go to make prayers and intercession for the people of Israel, that that veil is torn in two. A symbolism... Of, of God showing humanity that there is no separation from us and him, from humanity and him, that we are made holy in that moment of Jesus' death because our sins have been paid for. That's the symbolism behind the veil tearing. Now, one of the most significant things that I want us to look at is this moment in which Jesus told the thief that today you will be with me in paradise. Now, this is a big point of discussion and even argument within theologies and, de and denominations because he is the one person in the New Testament that, that we clearly see had no water baptism. There was no baptism of the Holy Spirit. And there was, there's no signs of repentance. There's no fruit of repentance. It was simply, in this moment, all he had was a genuine heart. There is nothing else that could be attributed to his salvation. And yet, just with that faith in Jesus, all he had was faith that Jesus truly was significant. And Jesus told him, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, this is where it gets, this is actually a, a very detailed equation. Because look, he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus dies before the thief. Jesus dies before the thief. We know this because the thief had his legs broken, right? But Jesus was already dead. And so in that moment, it shows that that thief was the first conversion 
the first conversion into this new covenant of grace. He had no requirements from anything in the Old Testament, anything in the Old Covenant, and he was the first conversion of grace. I, I remember once having some, some people knock on my door. Y'all know those people that like come knock on your door and try to convert you to their religion? And uh, it was this, it was this, there were this, uh, this group of supposed Christians that were trying to convince me that you had to be water baptized in order to be saved. Hey, look, I love water baptisms, okay? We're going to be doing baptisms next week. I love it when people get baptized. But my argument with them is that even though it's an important, sacri- a, a, an important sacrament of our faith, even though it's incredibly meaningful, I cannot say, I will not say that's a requirement for salvation. And they were arguing with me back and forth. And I pointed out to this, this point right here. I said, the thief on the cross was promised paradise, and yet, and yet he was not baptized. And you know what they told me? Well, Jesus was alive then. And so he was able to, he had the authority to do that. And I said, see, that, that only shows your heretic views because I believe Jesus is alive. That he is resurrected from the dead. You see him as on the cross. I see him as alive and powerful. And that's the, that's the difference between the idea of works and the idea of grace. And we're going to talk about that more in a minute. To understand that this moment of death, the moment of death, that it changed everything in our way that we interacted with God, in the way that God interacted with us. Because we no longer were bound by works to be saved. We're no longer bound by works to be saved because Jesus bore the weight of this covenant, this new covenant, through death. Through death. And throughout this, uh, to understand... A lot of, we're going to be, have y'all ever drank from a fire hydrant before? That's what it's going to be like with all the scriptures that we're going to be looking at today. It's going to be like drinking from a fire hydrant. And if you have not read through the book of Romans, it is one of the best books to read through to understand this idea of theology with God. This idea of mixing grace and works and how we walk out our faith as new believers in Christ. And so I want to start by looking at Romans chapter 7, verse 1 through 4. And we're going we're gonna to start off where it says, For now, dear brothers and sisters, you who are familiar with the law. And keep in mind that whenever it says the law, Paul is referring to the, the Levitical laws in the Old Testament. It, it's not just the, it's not the Ten Commandments. He, he's talking about all of the laws in which the people of Israel had to obey in order to be right with God. You're talking about the law of circumcision, the law of Passover, the law of not eating pork. All of those laws is what Paul is referring to. He says, you who are familiar with the law, don't you know that the law, again, religious laws, applies only while a person is living? For example, when a woman marries, the law binds her to her husband as long as he is, what? Alive. Alive. But if he dies, the laws of marriage no longer apply to her. So while her husband is alive, she would be committing adultery if she married another man. He goes on to say, but if her husband dies, she is free from that law and does not commit adultery when she remarries. So my dear brothers and sisters, this is the point. You died to the power of the law when you died with Christ. And now you are united with the one who was raised from the dead. As a result, we can produce a harvest of good deeds for God. So Paul is referring to the idea of this old covenant to a new covenant. He refers to it almost like a marriage. And he says, because it's this confusing, this confusing thing among uh, Christians. It's like, well, don't we have to still follow the Levitical laws? Like, don't we still need to follow Passover? Don't, should we, wouldn't it be better if we don't eat pork? And we start thinking that we have to obey some of those Jewish customs in order to be made more right with God. Yeah, I know that I'm saved, but I want to do this stuff to make sure I'm extra saved, that I'm extra close to God by following these Jewish laws. And here, Paul, he's, he's displaying it in such a clear way, saying, when Jesus died, that was God in the flesh, And he made this death in which we are no longer bound to the covenant, that we are legally no longer bound to the old laws, 
no longer bound to this old covenant in which we were able to be made right with God. And when he resurrected, we have this opportunity to marry into this new covenant. Notice that Jesus is always refers to the church as a relationship with that of a marriage. And so we're able to be engaged in this new covenant with his resurrected self and it through while we're being saved by grace rather than by works. And so I want us to clearly understand that all of this is fixated on Jesus' death. His death. That is how we're able to move from the old law into the new, uh, in the old covenant into the new covenant. Okay? Now that we understand that, I want us to understand this, this concept of being death to the old. Religious works can never compare to knowing Jesus. Religious works can never compare to knowing Jesus. Let me share this verse in Romans chapter 3. It says, For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. Again, what law? The, all of the laws in the Old Testament. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. The, old, the, the Ten Commandments, not one human being has ever fulfilled the Ten Commandments except for Jesus himself. Even the, the idea of, well, I've never murdered someone. Jesus says, if you've ever hated somebody in your heart, it's just as much as murder. So he, he literally expounded that there's not one single person that has kept all Ten Commandments. And so Paul is saying right here in this moment that the Ten Commandments, as well as all the other laws, is to show us how much we need a Savior. It's to show us how sinful we are. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the, prof, uh, the prophets long ago. All of the Old Testament is painting, it is foreshadowing to this moment in which Jesus fulfills. It is no secret of the Messiah coming. He was supposed to fulfill all that is promised in Jesus. And it says, we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. Do you see how inclusive this is that, G that Paul is saying? For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard, yet God in his grace, in his grace, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. And he did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. Let me just jump down to verse 28. So we are made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. We're made right by faith and not by obeying the law. The reason that I want us to clearly understand this is, is because in, in the same book, in the same book of Romans, Paul says, does this mean that we should just keep on sinning? Of course not. But what it is showing us is that there's not one single thing that we could do that makes us right with God. There's not one work that you can do that makes you better than someone else. That there, all, all works that we could ever think of it is meaningless compared to knowing Christ. And what I've found is that because of, because of, I don't want to say ignorance, but because of simply not understanding the expounding work on the cross, so many Christians have believed that they need to go back to entering into these, these old laws. That it, we desire so much within us to be closer to God that we have, we've followed the ideas and teachings of some people who portray that we need to not eat pork, and that will make God like us more. That if we, if we follow Passover on a regular basis, then that, that's actually making us more close to God. These verses are telling us over and over that re these religious works mean nothing. They mean nothing. And in Christ... We have something incredibly special when it comes to grace because the Old Covenant, the Bible describes it as a shadow. The Old Covenant was a shadow of the real thing. It was a shadow of, of relationship. And now through Christ, we have this real, living, breathing God who interacts with us. And it is by grace. It is such a relational God. And if, if we try to resurrect the Old Covenant, 
we never, we in turn reject the new covenant. Y'all feel what I'm saying? And everything, everything, everything hinges on Jesus Christ. Think about this for a moment. Any attempt, any attempt to compound works, what are works? Things like circumcision, things like, even things like baptism, any, any kind of work that we try to attribute to our faith, we take glory away from Christ. I, I was sharing earlier about that conversation I had with those people that came to my door. Man, did I make them so mad. <laughs> they were so irritated with me. Because the problem was that they came to me during the time that we were fasting as a church. And so I was all like super spiritual, you know. <laughs> and they were like, well, you know, at, uh, when do you think the Holy Spirit fell? And they, they, they were asking me, thinking I was going to say Acts chapter 2. I said, Acts chapter 10, when Cornelius, the first, <laughs> the first Gentile come. And they, were, they didn't even know the chapters I was talking about. I was like, you came here with nothing. <laughs> the, the part that was, the part that was, of the biggest disagreement is everything that they tried to put as a work that they believed was not just supplemental, but necessary to our faith. The idea of water baptism being necessary for our faith. They, they said even repentance, and don't get me wrong, we must repent, but that happens in the moment that we decide Jesus. We, it's a change of direction in which we go from life we go from death to life, and repentance is a, is a journey. It's not this list. It's not a list of like, I have to stop doing this, stop doing this for God to like me. Y'all feel what I'm saying? There's a big difference. And they, their, their portrayal, their projection was, you have to have clear fruit of repentance. And yes, our lifestyle will show fruits of repentance. But see, their idea of it was that it, it was what they would value as genuine repentance, works that they would deem good or ungood. And see, every, what I find is that churches do this a lot. Churches will do this a lot to where we, we devalue someone's relationship with God because we think that they are not good enough. We devalue someone who Jesus died on the cross for who's willing to die for, and we, we reject their relationship with him because we think that they are not good enough by the way they live. They could be trying, but we're like, well, they're not doing it yet. They're not good enough. And we reject them mid-journey because we want them to be where we're at. See, this is wrong. This is a wrong way to, to look at others. It's a wrong way to look at our own faith. It's, it's a wrong perspective because we take glory away from Jesus. We take glory away from Jesus. The minute that I say water baptism is required for faith, for, for my salvation, it, you must understand that glory, we, we make up percentages, right? Like you got to give 110%. That's not real. <laughs> it's, there's only 100%. There's only complete. And so if we imagine that glory is 100%, there's 100% of glory that you can give to Jesus. The minute that I say, and you have to be water baptized in order to be saved, I take away from that percentage and attribute it to works. Yeah, 50% Jesus and 50% water baptized. And I take glory away from Jesus. You understand what I'm saying? Any work that we try to compile, any work, and I want to I, I unpack this. I really encourage you to read through either the book of Hebrews, the book of Galatians, because Paul, he expounds on how these works don't save us. In fact, I want us to look at even just the, the idea of circumcision. Circumcision is one of the most highest valued religious works of, in the Jewish custom, in the Jewish faith. It is higher than all the Levitical laws. It, it precedes the Ten Commandments. It precedes do not eat pork to keep Passover. It precedes all that. It all goes back to the Abrahamic covenant. When God first promised that, the, the, uh, that his lineage would, uh, would proceed to the coming king. And so if we understand that Paul, it, that in Scripture, in Galatians, he literally confronts Peter 
to his face because of this, this, this issue of circumcision. All throughout the New Testament, we see that circumcision is not required for salvation. If we, there's no way you could, you could say that and read it in scripture and then say, yeah, but Passover is. It, there's no way you could read that and say, yeah, but eating pork is. Because that is more important than all the other things. Everything hinges on Jesus. Everything hinges on Jesus. He did the work in us and for us. I want to read this scripture in Galatians chapter 2. It says, for when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. You ever been to a religious show like that? You ever been to the, the religion in the churches where it just feels like you have to do this to be right? You have to do this to be right. You have to do this to be right. And look how Paul says, I tried to keep the law. I tried to do what they wanted me to do. And it condemned me. I felt worse. I always felt like I wasn't good enough. I always felt like I wasn't worthy. So I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all its requirements so that I might live for God. What an amazing portrayal Paul is showing us. He stopped trying to fulfill the checklist of religion so that he could finally start living for God. I really believe that when we, when we have this fixation on trying to repent of every little thing, that we lose sight of what we could actually be doing for God. People out here trying to not eat pork, but won't witness Jesus to somebody. They're not eating pork. They're not eating pork. Praise God, right? But they won't tell anybody about Jesus. They're not praying for anybody. They're not ministering to a single soul. But... They follow Passover. See, Paul's saying, once I finally stopped that foolishness, I actually started being able to live for God. I actually started to find fulfillment in my relationship with Christ because I got to see him work through me. It goes on to say, so that I might live for God. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. See this identification? This identification and he's saying, I died to trying to earn my salvation. And I finally decided to, to just accept the grace of God through Jesus. It goes on to say, so I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not treat the, the grace of God as meaningless. For if, I, if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. How much more clear could we get? And yet we have so many people that believe that if we behave a certain way, if we perform some type of religious ceremony, that that will make us more right with God. Jesus would have never had to die for us then. And this simply is sharing that every time we try to do that, we take glory and honor away from that death on the cross by trying to create something ourselves, something man-made. Look at this other verse in Philippians chapter 3, verse 3. It says, For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. Paul's he's talking smack to those who are trying to claim that they had to be circumcised in order to be saved. He's talking smack to those who try to put religious works. And he's saying, while they think their works, their man-made works can save them, we're truly circumcised in our hearts because our hearts are right with God. Saying it's all a matter of the heart. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us, and we put no confidence in human effort. By grace, by grace, by grace we are saved. There's not one single thing that you could do. Does that not encourage your soul? Does, it not, does that not encourage your salvation? I don't know how many times I would talk to Christians who doubt their own salvation. They doubt, I don't even know if I'm really saved because of this, this portrayal of religious works being required. Thank God for his grace. Let me share another, let me, let's continue in Philippians. It says, yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. 
dude, we could have a praise break right there. Saying everything else is worthless. You're talking about Paul, who is a member of the Pharisees, the strictest group of religious leaders. One of the strictest group of religious leaders to where they looked at everybody as less than because they did not, they could not even match their religious discipline. And he says, all of the religious works I've ever done are meaningless. They're worthless. Every time that I fasted in order to try to make myself right with God, it was worthless. Every time I did this, every time I did that, every single thing I did is worthless compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The more that we know him, the more we will show him. He says simply knowing Jesus, knowing him more, pursuing him more is the best thing you could ever do to your faith. Not trying to follow a list of rules of or, or ordinances, but simply pursuing the person Jesus is infinitely more valuable than anything else in this world. He goes on to say, for his sake I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage. He's not talking about a, a sinful lifestyle. He's not talking about a worldly lifestyle. He's talking about religious works being as garbage as garbage compared to knowing Christ so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. I become righteous, not by works, but by faith in Christ. And it goes on to say, for God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. Depends on faith. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. See, we, we, we have to really, I know I'm saying the same thing over and over, but we have to really capture, we have to really capture just how meaningful the relationship with Jesus Christ is. Think about this for a moment. I'm a pastor. My job is to lead people closer to God. And most times, most times when people are asking me for direction, I tell them to pursue Jesus through prayer, reading scripture, fasting. They simply pursue Jesus. Yeah, but I just need something more. And see, I, what I've found is that a lot of people will even be inclined to, to go into a different religious church. People will be inclined to go to a Messianic Judaism church to where they perform all of the Jewish sacraments in the Old Testament as a part of their faith. See, why, why, I always felt it, found it so crazy. Like, why would you want to put chains on you? Why would you want to put on chains of religion? But it's because it makes us feel, it, it makes us feel in control. That's really what religious works do. It makes us feel in control when it comes to faith, when it comes to uh, this idea of even like controlling God. It's this idea that when I do this, God has to do this. God has to like me. God has to do this because I did this. And the simple idea of faith, of being saved by grace, it requires this exponential faith. It's believing that Jesus alone that Jesus alone is what saves you. The Bible says that he credits us righteousness because of our faith. How many of y'all have a credit card? <laughs> how, many, how long did it take you to realize that that wasn't your money? <laughs> Until you maxed it out? <laughs> Until you realized how much the payment was at the end? See, you, we, we thought it was ours, but we realized it wasn't ever ours. Now, for what the Bible says is that righteousness is credited to us by faith. The Bible also says that man's greatest idea of holiness is like filthy rags to God. It's saying that no, no matter how much we could ever possibly try, that our holiness will never truly be holy. That we, we are man and we are, it, we are embedded with sin. It is part of our nature. And when he credits us righteousness through faith, he gives us something that we do not have within ourselves. And the debt that is paid for all the righteousness that's been credited to us was through Jesus on the cross. He, 
He canceled our debt. He paid our debt on the cross. But we must understand it is all in him. If we want to do something supplemental to our faith, by golly, do it. But don't you think for a second that you are storing up some greater righteousness for yourself or that it is bringing you even a, 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 a sense of deeper holiness to God. You, you can practice whatever you want. If you want to edify your mind, that's really what you're doing. And that's fine. But don't think for a second that you are bettering your salvation. You can better your intellect. You can better your mind. I think Passover is a beautiful thing because it, all of it points to Jesus. When you look at the, symbol, the, the symbolism behind all the things of Passover, it's incredible how much it, is, it shows Jesus. So where even the bread, did you know that the way that they would bake the bread, specifically the unleavened bread, that it would leave stripes on the bread and it, would, it was signifying the stripes on Jesus' back when he was whipped for our transgression. There's so much symbolism behind it. But again, when I, I could practice that, I've, I've gone through that. And what I found is that it, it can feed my intellect, which is great. It is, knowledge is good. Don't get me wrong. But to ever confuse that with my salvation, I, I ruin something that is already beautiful because I try to go back to the old covenant. Everything hinges on Jesus and his death. So now that we understand being death to the old covenant, let's understand this new covenant of grace, living through grace. Grace is best seen through struggle. Grace is best seen through struggle. You ever had a job that you weren't qualified for? I'm standing in it right now, right? <laughs> see, you're able to best see God in the moments of struggle. The moments that you know that you can do it. You ever hear that saying, God will never give you something you can't handle. That's actually not biblical. The only way we're able to see his mercies, the only way we're able to see his miracles, the only way that we're able to see his grace is in the moments that we truly can't handle it, that we were not prepared for it. The moments that we are in deep struggle, we see God the most. Grace is what that is. In Romans 8, 17, it says, And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are the heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share his glory, we must also share his suffering. The reason I want to share this part is because there's, there's a big misconception that the moment you become a Christian, it's going to fix all of your problems. In fact, a lot of churches play on our emotionalism to bring us to Christ. They, they, they rehash. You ever been to a, a service or maybe you went to a retreat to where they just bring out all of your childhood traumas? It's great. You go to a three-day retreat thinking you're going to get closer to God, and they just remind you of everything horrible that ever happened to you as a child. And then at the end of it, they say, but now you have God as your heavenly father. If I want to make people cry, I could just start preaching about father wounds. Just start talking about father wounds and just hit father wounds. And man, for youth service, that's great. All these kids will be crying at the end. I'll seem like I just did a great sermon. But all I did was trigger them. All I did was trigger them because I've painted this image that all the bad things in your life, they'll go away when you come to Jesus. How many of y'all know that when you came to Jesus, things got a lot more hard? There's a lot more struggle. In fact, the greatest struggles of my life I have been when I've been in Christ. I, I mean, I may not have had the same kind of struggles as before. They've matured. <laughs> They've matured. It, now when I think about the struggles before, like sleeping outside, stealing for food, pfft, nothing compared to the struggles now in Christ. See, this, it, this verse is sharing that as we share the glory of Jesus, what is the glory of Jesus? We find it in his joy. We find it in his peace. We find it in this, this right relationship with God that expounds all knowledge and all understanding. And Paul says, but with all of the glory of Jesus, we also share in his struggle. Because while being 100% God and 100% man, he went through all of the struggle of this world. He went through all the struggles. I mean, think about when, when people were following Jesus, he, he would tell them, they said, we want to follow you. He said, the Son of Man, referring to himself, has no place to lay his head at night. 
He doesn't know where he's going to get his next meal. His, his next meal. Are you sure you want to follow him? Talk about Jesus knowing what it's like to be hungry, knowing what it's like to be tired, knowing what it's like to be rejected, even by his own family, his own family rejecting him. He knows the struggle of this world and to the point of death. Not only his own experience, but think about the moments in which, it, even just the moment in which Lazarus died. Does the Bible not say Jesus wept, that he mourned, that he grieved? See, we see he, he went through our humanity. He went through our struggles. And, and the cross, he became the persecution. He became the persecution for this world. And when we identify with him, we identify with all the glory, but we also identify with that struggle. And that is why the minute you become a Christian, you become targeted in the spiritual world to where, have you not noticed that the moment you became a Christian that even your own family members all of a sudden are irritated with you and you don't even know why? It's like, this, like a switch went off. You, you are now sharing in the struggle. You share in the struggle. But through the struggle, we see God's grace as much as I'm painting the picture of, tr of struggle, I wouldn't trade it. I wouldn't trade it for anything in this world because nothing can compare to the knowledge of knowing Christ. Nothing can compare to his presence. Nothing can compare to his peace, to his joy, to just this relationship with him. Nothing can compare to it. So I will gladly share in the struggle because of the glory that comes with him. I want us to to understand that as all of that I'm saying with grace, I want to I be clear in debunking both, both sides. I'm, I'm debunking legalism. I'm showing scripture that's expounding and expounding about how legalism, the idea of performing works, having this legalistic mindset on God that you have to perform these tasks in order to be right with him, that that is not biblical. The other side of it is also true, greasy grace, to where we just like swan dive into a cesspool of sin. We're like, God's okay with it. God, God loves me. It's okay. Yes, God loves us. God is, it, it, he's incredibly infatuated with us, but he's not no fool. He, he will not be used. He will, the Bible says that we cannot test God. And when we live an unbridled life of sinfulness, we are trampling on the blood of Jesus. We are treating something incredibly holy as something ordinary. As if, well, I just washed my hands. I could just wash my hands again. See, that's not what it was intended for. That's not the intention of the, of, of the blood of Jesus. What, what I'm trying to share is that it's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of our heart. There's a difference between sinning and struggling with sin. Not one person is perfect, right? We know that. But there's a difference from struggling with that sin and swan diving into it. Trying to resist and running to it. There's a difference. There's just a difference. And we must understand that that grace is for that struggle. It's not for the unbridled swan dive. It's for the struggle. It, and I believe that when we understand the goodness of God, there's a natural change in our heart that is called repentance. Like I, I alluded to earlier, repentance is translated to change direction. We go from death to life. We change direction. It's not this, this taskless. It's just the more that you start walking towards the light of God, you start leaving the darkness behind. The, the minute when I gave my life to Christ in, in 2009, there's a moment where the, the day I made that decision, I was made right with God. I had this change in my heart to where I no longer desired the darkness of this world. I, I, I just knew that I didn't know exactly how it would look, but I knew that I wanted God in my life. See, that was a moment of change. Now, a couple months later, I made, made some great progress. And I remember the first, the first 
uh, I started going to a church and I, I, the first event that I, I went to volunteer at was this youth car wash. And I remember there's a moment in which one of the youth leaders was trying to tell me what to do. And I didn't like that. And so I got up and I was ready to deck that boy in the mouth. <laughs> I was ready to knock him out. And, and there's a moment in which I was in his face and he's like shocked and stepping back. And I looked around and everyone else was like terrified. Like, oh, who left this monster in here? <laughs> and see, in that moment, everybody else's eyes, I wasn't saved. <laughs> there's no way this boy is saved. And, and I remember sitting back down and I kept cleaning the car, and I remember thinking, wow, God, you've really done a work in me. <laughs> I can't believe I didn't hit that guy. <laughs> God has brought me so far. See, my repentance looked completely different than their idea of what repentance was. My, my journey, I was at a completely different place in my journey than they were. See, I might have got angry, but at least I wasn't doing coke anymore. I was, I was making some great strides. I was on the path of repentance. And we must understand that that's why legalism does not work with grace. It doesn't work with grace. But greasy grace doesn't work with authentic grace either. There's just this, this balance, and it all boils down to our heart. Look at what this, this verse says in Romans 7, 21 through 25. It says, I've discovered this principle of life. That when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. This is Paul, the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, who's, I would imagine, if we were to look at man's concept of holiness, he's more holy than all of us, right? And he's saying that he has a struggle, the struggle that I'm talking about here, that struggle of sin. He's not sinning, but he struggles with sin. The Apostle Paul, and he's at war with himself, that he battles against it. It goes on to say, oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God. Thank God the answer is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I'm a slave to sin. See, there's never a point in which we simply arrive. There's Apostle Paul way far ahead than all of us, and he has not arrived at this completion of sainthood, of perfection. And he says, thank God. I have the grace of Jesus Christ to cover me in my imperfections, to cover me in my struggles. I strive and I try, but thank God, even though I could never do it on my own, I have the grace of God. See, we, we need to really change our perspective on grace. Change our perspective on grace. This last verse says this. Romans 7, 6 says, but now we have been released from the law, for we died to it and are no longer captive to its power. Now we can serve God, not in the old way, not in the old covenant of obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way of living in the spirit. The new way of living in the spirit. It's this portrayal that's not about what we can't do in order to please God, but all that we can do to please God. You ever heard of the fruits of the Spirit? It talks about love, joy, peace, gentleness, self-control. It's, it's talking about focus on these things. Don't look at what you can't do, but look at what you can do in Christ. And I believe that that is seen in simple ministry, being the hands and feet of Jesus to other people. That is, that is being Jesus in the flesh. Whenever you have this unction to pray for somebody, even if it's a coworker that you don't even like, see, you're extending the grace of God to other people through ministry. Every time that, that you have an act of generosity, you are operating in the grace of God. You are doing something that there's no law against. There, there's so much that we can do for God that can, that can fulfill that desire for more in our hearts. It's, desi it's seen in what we can do for God, not, 
trying to obey and resurrect these, these old covenant theologies about how we can perform some religious work. Rather, look at the ministry that you could do in Christ. Not one of us has to be perfect to minister Jesus to somebody else. But each of us have the, the potential, the power, the ability, we have the grace to minister the love of God to somebody else. With that being said, I want us to bow our heads and close our eyes. And as I am talking about grace, I'm unpacking grace and talking about grace and grace and grace. Maybe you're here right now and you've never heard this idea of being right with God in such a way through grace. Maybe you've even doubted your own salvation. You've believed in yourself that you had to do some other things to be right with God. And today is the first time that you realize how powerful simply the, the faith in Jesus Christ is. How powerful the blood of Jesus truly is. And you've never made a decision to trust 100% in that. The 100% in Jesus. And you want to do that today. With every head bowed and eye closed, I want you to raise your hand. I see your hands. I see your hands. So just right there to yourself, I want you to have a conversation with Jesus. The Bible says in this book of Romans that if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is who he says he is, surely you shall be saved. There's no other works attributed to it. It's simply that faith. You don't need me to lead you through a pretty prayer. You can have that conversation yourself with him today. Now, while they do that, for the rest of you, if, if you feel like this calling in your heart, this this reaffirmation within your faith that God, that you are right with God, that God simply loves you. And maybe you even feel this, this beckoning to show that grace, to show that love of God to others. Whatever way that looks like, if that's you and you feel like God's speaking to you today, I want you to raise your hand. See all your hands. So now I'm going to pray for you. Holy Spirit, I pray for the presence of God to empower each person here. I pray for your Holy Ghost to settle on each person, that they would feel the tangible presence of God as a reaffirmation of you truly speaking to them, of you calling them, that you'd give them ears to hear your voice, that you'd give them eyes to see things like you see. And I pray, God, that you would impart to them the gifts of the Holy Spirit, reveal to them their callings, and help them to have the courage to be obedient to you. I thank you, Lord, that each of these people, they see you, Jesus. And I pray that you just increase that relationship, grow that relationship in their lives. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. amen. So with that being said, we're going to go into a time of worship. Before we do, we're going to sign off online. Thank you guys for being a part. Have a good life. Hey, I hope that you enjoyed today's message. If you did, there's several different ways to connect. First is by subscribing to our show, leaving a review or a comment. Second is by going to gravetopchurch.com and clicking the Get Connected tab so that we can connect with you as an individual. And third is if this ministry has made an impact in your life and you want to help us to continue to reach others, then you can give online by clicking the Give tab. Until next time, thank you for being a part of Gravetop Church.